The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. All right, brothers, it's a delight to be here. <clears throat> we are in the midst of the setting for the summons to satisfaction, so we haven't heard it yet. We haven't heard the summons, um, but the setting is now going to be laid out. The ground for why Israel, Judah, needs to be silent has been given, uh, and the ground is that judgment's coming. And so in the, in the context of this reason for silence now, there's going to be the call to silence. So picture a large room filled with people who are awaiting the arrival of a king. And you happen to know that you're among those who have not treated the king fairly. You haven't honored him as the king. And he's showing up with all power, with all authority, and you're holding nothing. And the courier says, he's walking down the hall. Quiet. And there's something going on in your soul as this king who created heaven and earth, who holds your very breath in his hand, who's able to decree life and death in an instant. He's going to show up. And so what we read here in verse 7 is be silent before the sovereign Yahweh. Lord God, G-O-D, all capital letters. It's the only time the ESV or NIV or New American Standard put God in capital letters. It's when it's right next to the word Lord. And saying Lord, Lord sounds a little funny. So, Lord God, it's the sovereign, the master, Yahweh. Be silent before Him, and then we get the reason for why the silence needs to be there. And there's actually two reasons side by side, in the ESV anyway. Um, I'm going to open up and look at the NIV as well. You don't see the second conjunction, but both... Well, first of all, we see be silent for reason... The day of the Lord is near. And then the very next clause also begins with the exact same word, for. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated His guests. So we have two side-by-side reasons why people need to be silent. The day is near and the nature of the day is sacrificial. So let's try to unpack this. The nearness of the day. For Israel, for Judah, they know a lot about the day of the Lord. Israel already experienced the day of the Lord as the northern kingdom. There are lots of day of the Lords in the Bible, all building up for the culminating, ultimate, great day of the Lord. So look over at verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near. Similarly, in the New Testament, we hear a lot about the tribulation. Tribulation is something that's experienced in pockets all throughout the world in anticipation of the great tribulation. 
First John 2.18 says, You've heard that the Antichrist is coming? I tell you, the hour is already here. The spirit of the Antichrist is alive and well. So, we're expecting things of the ultimate Antichrist, but the spirit of the Antichrist, both in false teaching and persecution, is already happening, says John, from the day of the resurrection forward. Well, similarly, there are these anticipatory days of the Lord. Every time the intrusion of God, the future reality, the ultimate judgment day, comes into the present for individual nations or peoples. So the flood is portrayed like a day of the Lord experience. It's the day when the warrior God shows up to do his battle against evil. And he does it in pockets. So he did it against the Canaanites. He brought judgment on them. Their time was up. His patience for that people was over. And now it moved from patience to judgment. And that shift from the day of patience or the season of patience to the day of judgment will come for all. Think about Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61 says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to bring good news. Remember that text. Jesus quotes it to kick off His ministry. Good news unto the poor to declare freedom for the captive. To declare what? The year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To proclaim a year of favor, and to proclaim a day of vengeance. We have to see that contrast. But in the times, all the gospel writers who quote that text, Isaiah 60, 61, Jesus is in the synagogue in Nazareth, and they give him the scroll, and he turns it to Isaiah 61, and he reads it. He closed the scroll, wrapped it up, right after he said to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he didn't. He stopped. He said, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. But he didn't add the part about the day of the vengeance of our God. And that suggests to me that Jesus was seeing the ministry of Isaiah's servant in Isaiah 61 as being stretched out over a time period between his first appearing and his second appearing. And we're living in the year of the Lord's favor when the opportunity is being given all around. The terms of peace are being declared. The king is coming. And the call is, be silent. Take your sin seriously and get your life right with God. The, it's like, um, well, we, we see it very practically. If you're a history buff and have studied Alexander the Great. So the year is 300 B.C., 300 years before Jesus. Alexander the Great is the massive superpower coming from the north, and he's expanding Greek culture and Greek language all over the world. What he sent ahead of him was called a Kerux, a preacher. We see Kerux in the New Testament everywhere. It's the word for the preacher. And what they do is Keruso. They proclaim good news. 
Here's the good news. I'm going to offer you a term of terms of peace. Before Alexander the Great shows up, you have a choice to make. You'll surrender or you'll die. What do you want? But the amazing thing is that he didn't just show up and wipe them out. He sent his courier, his preacher, ahead to proclaim good news. You have an opportunity. But know this, the day of the Lord is coming. And right now is when you have to make the call. Take your sin seriously. Be silent and feel the weightiness of the king's imminent presence. So that's what, that's what Zephaniah is doing. He's calling people to wake up and examine their lives. But before he calls them to make the ultimate examination, he's going to portray for them in very vivid colors, some of the most vivid colors of the Old Testament, this day of the Lord. So let's look at it. We know it's a near day. Now we learn about its makeup. It's a sacrificial makeup. So we read it in verse 7. Be silent, for Yahweh has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated His guests. Now that's weird language for battle. Sacrifice. God's going to show up and slaughter is going to happen. The enemy against God will be put down. And only those who are no longer His enemy will stand. Those who find refuge in God now will be preserved. But he's not even talking about them yet. He's already told us, I'm going to cut off all mankind from the earth. And not only from the earth global, in Judah, this remnant of Baal is going to be put down. So we're already there. We've seen that much. And now he's saying, be silent because... The king is just on the other side of the hill. Now for Judah, what this meant was that Babylon was coming. Babylon was the agent of God's wrath in that particular time. But Zephaniah, as with other prophets, the day of the Lord gets blurry because in one breath he's talking about the Babylonians and in another breath he's talking about the cataclysmic ultimate big day of judgment at the end of the age. And it's because of that that you and I can find preaching value in talking about the day of the Lord because we are still a people awaiting the ultimate end. And yet, and only if we are in Jesus has the day of the Lord judgment already been paid for us. That's what Jesus takes at the cross. Now, I want you to see how this works. A sacrifice throughout the Old Testament, depictions of war... And judgment, whether against Israel or against the nations, are portrayed as sacrificial experiences. So let's just go look at a couple of these really quick. Um, Isaiah 22, against Jerusalem. Isaiah 22, verse 12. Here's... The word of the Lord, Isaiah 22, verse 12. So this is specifically against Jerusalem. In that day, the sovereign Yahweh of armies, Yahweh of hosts, called for weeping and for mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth. And behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The Lord of hosts has revealed Himself in my ears. Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for until you die. Not super clear, but 
he's talking about judgment against Jerusalem and he's using sacrificial type language. It gets more clear. Turn with me to Isaiah 34. Draw near, O nations, to hear, and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear, and all that fills it, the world, and all that comes from it. For Yahweh is enraged against all the nations, and furious against all their hosts. He's devoted them to destruction. That's what God did against the Canaanites, and now He says He's going to do it against the world. He has given them over for slaughter. That's what you do to lambs. Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise, and the mountains shall flow with their blood. Turn with me now over to Jeremiah 46. So this is judgment on Egypt. Jeremiah 46, verse 10. That day, that judgment day is the day of the Lord Yahweh of hosts. What is that day? It's a day of vengeance. To avenge himself on his foes, the sword shall devour and be sated and drink its fill of their blood. For Yahweh, the Lord Yahweh of hosts, holds a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. He holds a sacrifice. Now, we're going to miss something massive if we don't connect this language of Yahweh's war of judgment with the book of Leviticus. Same thing's happening. Atonement. God is making His world right again. There's been hostility and tension, and it's through sacrifice that God makes atonement. But atonement is not only for people of faith. It's also what God is doing when He destroys a sinner. His judgment will fall. His wrath will be appeased against sin. And the fires of His wrath will either pour on the substitute or on the sinner. But they're both sacrifices. You will either be the the sacrifice or Jesus will be the sacrifice on your behalf. Either way, God's wrath will be atoned. And this is being portrayed in this moment, the day of the Lord. He's the warrior. And it's an amazing king who can come in and clean up all the mess in a single day. But that's how it's being portrayed. He's that effective and that powerful. All the problem in the world will be fixed that quick. And he'll show up and he will make a sacrifice. And for the reader... I think this language of sacrifice would automatically have brought in their mind Leviticus. And in Leviticus, you can't only have a sacrifice. That by itself is not effective. There's conditions that make the sacrifice effective. A broken and contrite heart and confession of sin. You have to be broken in order for the substitute to stand in your place. Otherwise... You become the sacrifice. God's fires will either pour on the sinner or on the substitute. Which will you be? And good news! The king's not here yet. 
But be silent and take your sin seriously because God has a sacrifice. Now we come, He's consecrated His guests. That's what it says next. And I am not fully certain how to understand that. I have two, well, there's three possibilities. Two of them seem very probable to me. One is that he's simply anticipating that there's going to be a remnant who are actually saved through the judgment. And they might even participate in the judgment. And other texts talk about that, the remnant of faithful few. But I don't think that's what he's talking about here. Consecration is an act of declaring something holy or making something holy. And all of the sacrifices in the Old Testament had to be consecrated. And part of it happened through the hand imposition. Four-syllable word. Um, So when... You you know, they brought in the animal, and they actually had to lay their hands on the animal, and there was a transfer. Through a picture, you were transferring, this animal represents me. And then the animal would be slaughtered, and the, the priests would then go in and sprinkle the blood where it needed to, and atonement would be made for you. But that beast had to be assessed. Was it unblemished? Everyone needed to know that that animal was not dying because of its own disability and malfunction. He was dying for me. And not only that, the unblemishedness of that animal was going to be counted as my unblemishedness. So the animal had to be consecrated. So is that the guess that it's talking about? That's possible because the language, this exact language of that sacrificial lamb had to be consecrated, that's part of, it's all over Leviticus. But then I read this text. Isaiah, uh, let me see. Isaiah 13, verse 3. And this is probably what we're talking about. God's judgment on Babylon, it's day of the Lord depiction. We'll begin reading in verse 2, Isaiah 13, verses 2 and 3. On a bare hill, raise a signal. Cry aloud to them, wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. I myself have commanded my consecrated ones and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exalting ones. So here, the agents who will bring about the judgment of God are called the consecrated ones. So one option was that I've consecrated my guests, I've prepared a sacrifice and I've consecrated my guests, that the guests are the sacrifices. But this text would suggest the guests are actually the agents of God's wrath. And for Judah, this would mean the Babylonians. I've made them, I've set them apart for a holy task, and that task is to be the agents of judgment, and they're ready. Do you realize that, Judah? Are you taking your sin seriously? Because I have a time set when judgment will fall. It's coming. Verse 8 through 13, then is all to be read together, and it unpacks the nature of this sacrificial experience specifically for Judah. In verse 14, it's going to 
make it bigger, and that same imagery of judgment is going to be portrayed on a global scale, and that's where you and I can read it and say, this, this day is still coming, verses 14 through 18. But in verses 8 through 13, it seems it's very focused on the immediate people in Judah. But their problems that are going to be depicted, what's bringing about this judgment is still so relevant today. So let's look at it. Verses 8 through 13. We'll target 8 and 9 first, then 10 and 11, then 12 and 13. Each of these begins with the same word in Hebrew, and it shall come about that. Verse 8 begins that way. Verse 10 begins, and it shall come about that. And then verse 12, same way, and it shall come about that. So I, I see these as three... Distinct units that are all working together. And I'm going to open up my outline so that I remember where I'm supposed to be. All right. First step. The recipients of the judgment are defined. Verses 8 and 9. And it shall come about... On the day of Yahweh's sacrifice, who's going to get punished? Look at the first group. I'll punish the officials and the king's sons, and all who array themselves in foreign attire. And on that day I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold, those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. Interesting group that's mentioned. First off, Not all the prophets have knowledge of what's going on in the high-ranking politic area. Zephaniah is a unique guy that he knows what's happening in the king's house. He has an inroad at the highest echelons of the royal court area. He knows what the king's sons are doing. Now, who are the king's sons? Well, they're supposed to be people in the line of David who by their very makeup are supposed to display the greatness of God. They're supposed to be hoping in the offspring to come. The great warrior, male royal warrior who would defeat the evil one. Instead, they're they're not representing God well at all. In Deuteronomy 17, the king is portrayed as a man of the word. The one positive thing that he's supposed to do Negative things he's not supposed to do are clear. Don't multiply wives. Don't multiply wealth. Don't go back to Egypt and get horses. Negative influence from foreign interfaith marriages, we don't want that. Materialism and self-reliance, because you've got a lot of wealth, you think you're going to make it, we don't want that. Lots of horses to expand your military, we don't want that. The one thing we want is a king who makes a copy for himself of the law, and he reads from it every single day so that he will fear his God and follow his God and never lift his heart up above his brothers. It's that king who will have a long kingdom. He's a man of the word, which means he is not a replacement for the Lord. He's a representative of the Lord and that the king is a person under God's authority. Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20 is the passage I'm referring to. 
He's a man under authority, but then he's also not a man over his brothers. He's a man of his brothers. He won't lift himself over his people. What a model for leadership. The biblical vision of authority is never to be oppressive or dictatorial, but to be a man who is under the authority of God and who is one of the brothers but a leader of them. So here in the royal house, where noblemen are supposed to be being raised up to, un- to, to represent the Lord, not replace Him, instead what we have is a mess. And here's the mess as it's defined. I'll punish the officials and the king's sons who array themselves in foreign attire. I'm not actually sure what all that means, but this is clear. It's one more sign of pagan influence. Remember, we had the foreign priests who were in here, and at least there's something going on, and it has to do with looking really good. And the fruit of it is that there are certain ones who are getting higher and higher, at the expense and the exploitation of those who, are, who have little. And there's going to be a, a wall that's being separated. Partiality is being shown. And it's going to be a big problem. And we see that laid out. If you just turn over to chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, you're, you see how it's going to work itself out. Jerusalem's officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. That's the leaders in the land. 3.1 summarizes it this way. They're rebellious and defiled the oppressing city. So now turn back to chapter 1 and just look how it describes these guys. On that day, the day of judgment... This group I will punish. Everyone who leaps over the threshold. That's really weird. We only hear about a threshold, this kind of leaping, one other time. It happens in the book of Samuel. After the Ark of the Covenant is stolen by the Philistines, they take it to the temple of Dagon. And you remember how Dagon fell over, fell over, and... Just like Goliath, exact same phrase is used, he fell before, he, he fell face first before the Ark of the Covenant and his arms broke off. And maybe his head, did his head, I think his head broke off too. And from that point on, it says, the Philistines hopped over the threshold because they apparently thought something had been defiled, um, some, some superstitious activity. No one quite knows what's going on here, but it has something to do with pagan superstitious activity that is just wrong. And it's funny how even in our Western culture, we can come up with these, you know, don't step on the crack in the sidewalk kind of things, or don't eat orange juice on the third, third Thursday of the month, lest something else happen. And these rules will come at us, And it's just paganism. Don't add anything to the gospel. It's unnecessary. And then look at the last description. Those who fill their master's house with violence and with fraud. Fred.
You know, I don't see... We can use slang that way, but I don't see this phrase anyway. And I think there could be slang in the Bible, but I don't see this particular phrase being used in a slang way. You've crossed the line. It specifically says, not they've crossed the line, but they leap over the threshold. It seems to be talking about something more than line crossing. They don't want to touch the crack lest they break their back. There's something going on here that's just mixed up, twisted ridiculousness. And remember, these are, these, this group has been in darkness. Manasseh and his son Ammon had tried to do away with Yahweh and bring in as much of paganism as they could. And jo, jo, uh, what's his name? Josiah is trying to fix things. And one of the helps that God gave him was Zephaniah. And so he's identifying some problems. This last one seems to be a big one in the book, and we're going to see it over and over again. Violence and fraud. So here you've just got people of power. Some of you are bosses. And this, this is the kind of message that would be, how are you handling your leadership? It might be your secretary. It might be your lawn mowing boy. Or it could be, the specific people that God has placed under you, under you in your secular workplace while you're trying to balance that with your local church ministry. But violence and fraud, where there's oppression of those underneath, where they're not being treated as those created in the image of God, it actually offends God. And the text is going to make it so clear that they're sinning not simply against the people, they're sinning against God. We'll see that in chapter 3. But violence and fraud, and it showed itself in certain ways. It had a lot to do with money. Buying your way to, to get your way to work in the, in the political sphere, in the religious sphere. Paying off the prophet so he'd be saying what you want him to say. Okay, the priest has to make a judgment at this point, and you're paying him money so that it goes in your favor at the expense of someone lower than you. And that kind of fraudulent activity, under-the-table activity. It's happening in our churches all the time. People who think that they're okay. Think about Ananias and Sapphira. They're just one of the many in the church. And fear, we just heard about this, Pastor Tom preached on it on Sunday, fear falls on the entire congregation in Jerusalem. Why? Because probably most of them could identify with the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. It happened to them. It could certainly happen to me. Lying and violence. God hates it. He hates fakeness. What he's looking for, think about 1 Timothy 1 verse 5. The aim of our charge is that love would be produced in people, that issues from... A clean heart, a good conscience, and an unhypocritical, sincere faith. That there's a genuineness about my dependence on God. It's not just an outward look and show, but there's something real. That I'm nurturing a life of humility and brokenness. I mean, it starts with us, brothers. We have to be leaders in worship. We have to be men of the book and men of prayer so that It's not fake. God hates 
hypocrites. Number two, not only are the people, the recipients defined, their response, the response of the survivors from the judgment is highlighted. While the armies are moving through the city, this is what we hear. On that day, the day that I show up as a warrior God, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traitors are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. So I think he's targeting some things. Most likely, the fish gate and the second quarter are northern gates. Uh, Fishgate is the northernmost gate in Jerusalem, and the second quarter was most likely the high-end area. But it mentions the northern part because I think that's where Babylon will enter. They're coming in from the north. And then it says, a loud crash is from the hills. At the very least, these are all very familiar places to them, but I, I think that's the idea, is that these are the, this is the northern section defining where the enemy will intrude. Whale... Inhabitants of the mortar. And then it says, because all the traitors are no more. So whatever the mortar was, it was the location where um, commerce was happening. And I think that this is also pinpointing part of the problem. Where was violence happening? Where was fraud happening? It was happening among the traders who weigh out silver and gold. So all we're doing is identifying Israel's problem But we can also very easily, sin is sin. And we can identify areas in our own churches, in our own lives, where we're not living fully honestly. But what's happening is that people, our quest is notoriety and a bigger house. But it's coming at the expense of people. Specific lives that God created that are being treated as if they can be cast aside. As if money is truly more important than a person. So we've got their response. It's wailing. That's what judgment will bring. Is, that, I mean, is it really worth it to keep going the way you are in light of what's coming? That's what Zephaniah is asking. And then we read the devastation. Verses 12 and 13. At that time, I will search Jerusalem. Yeah. Would you say is verse 11 um, the cry or is it a continuation of Yahweh's words? Is, is verse 11 what the people are saying? That the whale went out? Or is it... Um, I... I think it is God, through His prophet Zephaniah, calling the people to wail in light of the judgment that He has brought. Is that getting at your question? My, my, yeah, my question, because He says, a cry will be heard. I was just wondering, was that the cry that was, was, that the cry that was heard? Is verse 11, that's, that's oh, okay. I mean, verse 11, it's, it's at least a command, right? It's a, it's a call, wail. Um, it just reminds me of yeah, 
on a far more global scale. Remember when the traders in Revelation, they're saying cry because the ships are sunk and there's no, mm -hmm. that's a very similar passage. This mm -hmm. is on a small scale, on a massive scale. That's, that, I was just wondering. If that's good. I, uh, I'll have to ponder that. I, it would make sense. It would make sense to me that we have the declaration of cry is going to be made, and that cry is, now it's just like in quotation marks, wail, O inhabitants of the mortar. And then God jumps in again. Why are they even crying for it? Because everything that they had, everything they were putting their hope in, all of their means of life to build themselves up are cleaned away. Just hear this devastation. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps. What's the implication? Judgment comes and it's dark. But no one, no matter where you're at trembling, will be able to stay away because God's judgment will bring light to your darkness. He's going to come with lamps and I will punish the men what do they look like? Very literally, they are thickening on the dregs. They're just hanging out, waiting around with no change. Just becoming potent in their sin. So the word, I mean, it was translated, who are complacent. Now, what is it? How does it define them? Those who say in their hearts, oh, Yahweh is not good, nor will he do ill. I think they've just lost hope in the promises of God, both with respect to curse and blessing. They are as complacent as can be. They're not thinking about the future. It's as if God's not on the roadmap. They are just living for the day, and God isn't going to intrude into my life. He doesn't do good, and He doesn't do bad. The same type of imagery is found all throughout the prophets. One example is in the book of Micah. Micah chapter 3, and this, I think, is very parallel text. Micah chapter 3, verse 9. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood. Zion's another name for Jerusalem. And Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads, that's the leaders, they give judgment for a bribe, its priests teach for a price, its prophets practice divination for money, yet they lean on Yahweh and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. So it's a different kind of speech at this point, but they're saying, All is well. I can live however I want to live. And, I mean, the presence of God is with us. We're the favored people of God. Now, it could comparably happen in the New Testament church. Oh, Jesus has paid it all. We've got all the grace we need. I can live how I want because I'm in. And Paul would say, Shall we continue to sin that grace may increase? By no means. Because justification, the fruit you get from being justified and standing right, the fruit you get 
leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. That God's grace does not make our work unnecessary. God's grace makes our work possible. And it's to produce something new in us. All of a sudden, the Spirit of God dwells in our hearts and all of a sudden, we're loving more and we're more joyful and we're more a people of peace, patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness. There's not a complacency. There's hope. Faith is future-oriented. It's related to promises. It's a right disposition of the heart Trusting that God is indeed for us and He's going to do what He said He would do. I'm going to live for Him today because it matters for tomorrow. Uh, Nick. Micah chapter 3, verses 9 through, what was it, 9 through 11? That's so, that's so helpful. So the activeness, the intentionality in the wrong areas with the wrong center. If God's not in the center, all kinds of busyness around something other than God is empty. He doesn't, doesn't compete. That's possible too. That's possible too. That you've got... He's coming at different groups from different angles here. Um, Verse 13, I think it's pinpointing again this violence and fraud. Where is the heart of it? He's just saying all that you've been putting your hope in, all that you've been living for is going to be gone. Their goods shall be plundered. Their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. This this is explicit reversal of what God promised in Deuteronomy. When Yahweh your God brings you into the land that He promised to your fathers, what's going to happen? This land, you will live in houses that you did not build. You'll drink from cisterns that you did not dig. You'll eat from vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. Now all of a sudden, it's, it's like total reversal. Now you're going to be building and not living. The curse is, it's, it's decreation. They're losing all blessing. All provision and all protection is being taken away so that now even all that they're doing, it, it reminds me of Haggai, which is the very next book, where it says those living after Zephaniah, after the curse has been brought, side note, Lunch isn't until 12.30. Now we come back. Um, (laughs) So Haggai says, you guys are doing everything. I'm just going to turn the page. I can just read it. 
You guys are doing all kinds of things. Um, Thus says the Lord of hosts, verse, verse 6, You've sown much, but you harvest little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your full, your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. I mean, that's a discouraging life. You earn your wages, but your pockets are empty. That's curse. And when God removes provision and protection from his people in that way, and he, that's the world that they're going into. So that's Judah's judgment. But then God steps back even further. And this is, this is powerful when you can talk to those that think they're the people of God and strip away all religious pride. You think you're better than everyone else? No, I'm going to put you in the same camp as everyone else. Here's where he goes. Verses 14 through 18. The timing and makeup of the judgment is now focused in on a global scale. And this is where, okay, yeah, Judah experienced their day of the Lord. Now we're going to talk about the great day of the Lord, the ultimate anticipation of judgment. Here's God's sacrifice. The great day of the Lord is near. It's near and hastening fast. Now just notice some of these characteristics, and they show up many times throughout the Bible. And then as we do, I want you to think about texts that you've heard of about Jesus' return. Okay? The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud. What is it? It's a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. So just look at this image. They think that they're living, all is well, and they're going to be moved back to darkness. It's... it's Rather than moving toward light, that's, that's the normal pattern. There's evening, we're living so much in this suffering-filled world in the evening. But know this, there's evening and there was morning, day one. That in God's time clock, the day doesn't end at night, it ends in the morning. When the sun's rising, it ends with light, not with darkness. And we're living in a day right now where dawn has come. But if dawn is all we get, if this is it, it's more like, I mean, try to, try to think of it. If, if this is as far as we get and our bodies are still struggling and our marriages are still struggling and our kids are still rebelling and our people in our churches are still not wanting to hear, is this as good as it gets? This is only dawn. But what makes dawn pleasing is that we know that noon is coming. If noon was not promised, dawn would simply be lingering night and it would be massive discouragement. A tough joke. But this isn't it. We're living on the brink of noon when the sun will rise and all shadows will be gone. And that's the hope. That's where we're heading. But what this text says is that when the day of 
Judgment comes. Think of Amos 4.12. Prepare to meet your God. Some of you may have visited this church, so I... I don't know. Um, I was preaching in around the Forest Lake area, just north of Forest Lake somewhere, at an evangelical free church. Have you been there before? Um, and it, the room's about this big, and I was preaching at this church, but on the back of their wall, in this giant banner-sized sign, up on, the, up on the wall is, Prepare to meet your God, Amos 4.12. And that is one of the most scary texts in all the Bible. This isn't hopeful. And I'm like, who in the world put that up on the wall? Because what does he say? You think the day of the Lord is light? Behold, I tell you, it's darkness to you. Prepare to meet your God. Just yeah, just want to encourage the saints as they go out in the world. You know? And it's like, whoa, this is, this is big. But what we have here is ruin, devastation, distress, anguish. This isn't honeymoon. You know, this isn't pleasing. This is honeymoon from hell. Here's your groom coming. Oh my, it's a move backwards. Creation is, is falling apart. It's moving back toward darkness, back toward chaos. That's what happens in judgment. And if I'm the listener and I'm actually hearing these words, I need to be the silence is being nurtured because I'm feeling the weightiness. This is about sin. God takes sin seriously and He still takes our sin seriously. Is there any answer? Am I among the everything when it says in verse 3, I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. I will stretch out my hand against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Am I one of them? Okay, I live at 10616 Verdon Street, Northwest, Coon Rapids. I guess I'm on the planet. Is there any hope? Is there any hope? That's the question I'm asking at this point. Because the darkness is so deep. This is absolute ruin, absolute anguish, absolute pain. He continues. Oh, before I jump ahead, a day of trumpet blast. Battle cry. Any texts come to mind? 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with what? A shout. With the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together to be with Him in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. That's day of the Lord. You seen how He has gone? I tell you, He will return in the same way. I've got, I've got a National Geographic Im images on my computer that will utterly distract you if I don't do this. When that, those images of Christ's return are of Him as a warrior. It's using the images of the day of the Lord in the past. He'll come like on the clouds, a thunderstorm in devastating power. Think Mount Sinai and its descriptions. That's how Jesus will return and He'll be carrying a sword this time. Not born in a 
stable. A day of wrath. And what will happen? Verse 17, I'll bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind. And then it tells us right why. Because they've sinned. And this sin is explicitly against Yahweh. I didn't sin against you. I just hurt this little kid who I could care little about. He was begging. Yeah, I I kicked him. So what? That's not you. And God says, let's think about this. I'm a dad of six kids. I come home from a hard day at work and my children have been working intently in the basement on a massive city structure. There's log cabins and there's Legos and it is expansive all around. And my five-year-old Ezra comes up, Daddy, can I show you what I've done? And I go and I look. Here's a big highway and he drives his car along the highway and then it goes up a bridge and down the bridge and then it comes off and he goes in and he's got a little garage and he comes to the garage and he's got to take his man off and set him to the side so he can fit his car in. And I just say, son, let's talk about this. I look at your highway, and you see this piece, the broken part? You've got to put it together or they're going to blow their tire. You climb up this mountain, and you've got a gap that is, I mean, they're going to fall to their death. Who parks a car in a garage that's too small? He can't even drive it, and he's going to have to push it into the garage every time he pulls up to it. You're a bad architect. This is ridiculous. And and I look up at Ezra, and my five-year-old is in tears. I say, no, no, Ezra, I wasn't talking about you. I was talking about what you made. But how we treat what God makes, we're saying something about the Maker and oppression, and fraud, and living as if other people mean very little in God's world, and as if we mean much more than someone else, is always wrong. And God says, that's what judgment day is for. I sent my son so that you wouldn't live this way. Ultimately, the sacrificial imagery is screaming. Do I have to be the sacrifice? Is there any hope for me? And what's wild is that in this book of Zephaniah, so there's 12 books, but the Jews read them all as a single book, a 12-chapter book. They call it the Book of the Twelve. And by the time we get up to this point in the book, it's excessively dark. So much so so that this is the is one of the only prophets who doesn't explicitly mention the Messiah. It's as if the messianic hope of sins paid for and evil conquered is almost as distant and as far away as possible. This is the clearest vision of absolute judgment on the world. And you and I are the readers saying, where do I go? What do I do? But it's still there, because by the time you've read Zephaniah, you've also read Isaiah. 
You know that there is one who would be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities, upon whom chastisement that brought us peace, that it was laid on him, that he becomes the lamb who can stand on behalf and be slaughtered. You know about him. You know about the good shepherd of the sheep. That God is the ultimate shepherd, Exodus, Ezekiel 34. He's the ultimate shepherd who shepherds his sheep through his king, the ultimate David. You know about him. And your eyes are supposed to say, well, what about the substitute? What about Leviticus? All of those lambs that are being slain pointing to something greater. Every bull that was slaughtered pointing to something greater. Can I tap into that? Is there a way that the ultimate wrath of God wouldn't pour down upon me? And that's how we're supposed to read Zephaniah. We're supposed to get to this point and feel the darkness and say, I want light. I want out. Where can I go before judgment day comes? I know the king is walking down the hall. Do I still have hope right now? And Jesus turns to the thief on the cross and he says, Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Your roster, today, Tripp and I in the room and Brother Joe, we were talking about trying to understand the whole idea of rewards. It's a difficult thing, but it's a big part of life. For without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he exists and that what? He's a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. Paul says... This is what I'm about. I'm about gain. I count everything as loss for the sake of Christ. To live is Christ. To die is gain. I want gain. I don't want to settle for what the world is offering. I want something more. Gain. Is there hope? Notice verse 17, it's because they've sinned against the Lord, their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. So blood and flesh, that's violent talk, that's warfare talk, that's gladiator or braveheart talk. And then it says, like dust and dung. That's where the serpent lives, in the dust worthless, empty, useless, dung, it's waste, it's excrement. We don't need it for anything. Get rid of it. That's the world of judgment. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them. Now this silver and gold could just be their money that they're hoping in or it could be the idols that they shaped by their silver and gold. But either way, I mean, idols, we know that there's a problem with idolatry. They're worshiping Molech, and there's Baal in the midst. And then there's the whole issue of fraud and violence, that's silver and gold. Either way, no earthly wealth and no spiritual power can stand against the judgment of God. On the day of the wrath of Yahweh, and then it says, in the fire of His jealousy... All the earth shall be consumed in the fire of his jealousy. And I've camped here before and I'll pause again because it's so centrally important. 
I cannot stand up in front of you, brothers, and say, Jason is the most important being in this room. I'm talking. Right now I'm talking. Write down my words. There's words that Jason is speaking and you're not writing them down. Your people need to hear me. Next round, Nick will sing a song about Jason. And we'll sing it together. Tell the world, I found him. The Savior has come. That is blasphemy. Unless you're God. The jealousy of God drives him. There shall not be to you any other God before me. When you think about the Godhead, don't picture a whole bunch of little gods and then me on the big throne. No, I am it. I am the absolute and only sovereign of the universe. And then what does he say? Don't make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in the heavens above or on the earth beneath or in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to those gods or worship them. Because I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God. He's jealous. Exodus 34, I think it's verse 15. He says explicitly, My name is Yahweh. I am jealous for my name. He alone can do that. In fact, it's necessary that He do that because He is absolutely supreme. He's the only Son ultimately in the universe. The only Son. Everything revolves around Him. It is necessary for God to say, live for me. Love me with all. I am absolutely jealous for my namesake. And if you do not give me glory, you are in sin and worthy of judgment. It is necessary for God to do that because if He is God, began to live for anything other, put anything up higher than Himself, what would happen? If He is God here, and all of a sudden He's saying, live for something higher, I'll allow it. What happens? He gets trumped. He no longer is the ultimate being of the universe, the, element, the, the being of most value. He can't stop living for himself. He must. It's necessary, but it's also right because he is at the center of the universe. And everything is coming from him, from him, through him, and to him is everything. But brothers, this is the most loving kind of a commandment that God could give. Live for me, because only when you follow him do you enjoy life. If you turn your back like they are in verse 6, turn your back from following God, you're heading in the direction of darkness and death because there's nothing out there. He alone is the sustainer. And so it's the most loving thing of God to say, live for me so that we can enjoy life. And Psalm 1611, in His presence is fullness of joy at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. The greatest amount of joy for the longest amount of time is with God. And He's saying, I want you to gain. Don't settle for second best. 
It's the most loving thing he can do to be jealous for himself. And it's also necessary and right. So what does he say? In the fire of his jealousy, he will atone for all sin. He will make the universe have right order, wherein he is supreme over all. The language here is, in the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Turn with me now as we close this section. Turn with me over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We could go to so many texts in the New Testament that echo Zephaniah's language here, but we'll go here. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Verse 5, well actually we'll start in verse 4, and you'll see how this relates. We're setting ourselves up now for the actual summons to satisfaction. And the summons is going to be a call to repent and a call to persevere. To have a tireless pursuit of God in the midst of a very broken world, anticipating that judgment is coming, and to still hold fast to God. That's where Zephaniah is going. And it's the same place Paul is. So 2 Thessalonians verse 4. Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God. Everywhere we go, we're telling them, look at the Thessalonians. They are steadfast and they believe. In the midst of all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. So they're holding fast to God. I'm not going to let Him go. I'm going to take sin seriously. I'm going to continue in my dependence on Him. Then notice what it says. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. Is God just in forgiving you? Is God just in giving you perseverance, in portraying His worth to keep you going even in the midst of a very hard season in life? Is God just to do that for you? This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also are suffering. Since indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. That's what He will do. You don't have to hold bitterness in your heart. You can actually respond good for evil because it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. That's how Paul talks in Romans 12. The hope that I have, the power that I have, the fuel that I have to love my enemy today is based on a promise that says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. You're putting your faith in the promises of God that God takes the sin that's been done against you very seriously and He will judge. Ministering to college students, that's so important because so many college students have not grown up in God-centered homes. They've experienced radical brokenness. Fathers that haven't loved their wives, their moms. Dads who introduce pornography to their own sons. Boyfriends who say that they love them and instead are abusing them. And what they need to hear is a massive hope that you have a God who recognizes how much you've been wounded And He takes it seriously. You don't have to carry the burden. He will judge truthfully. So He continues. 
God considers it just to repay with affliction to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you. It is just to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. Because of what Jesus did at the cross in taking your sin, your burden upon Himself, it would be unjust for God to be for you. You've put your faith in Christ. He is bound. It is the right thing for Him to do to show up in your life and to give you all that you need for life and godliness, even through hard, hard times. God considers it just to grant you relief who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus, when will it come? This is the promise we have. The relief will come when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels. How? In flaming fire. When He comes, that's what it's going to look like. It's going to be judgment day. He will come in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is Zephaniah's audience. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. But notice the ultimate purpose of Christ's return. When He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of His calling. And that's my prayer for you, that God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith. May He do it by His power. That's where Zephaniah is headed. That's where I see him on the trajectory of the biblical perspective. He, even not as clear as Paul had it, but he had a vision of the end, that it was coming, and he was calling people who already smelled like smoke to find the water of cleansing, the water of relief, and it will only come through repentance and through perseverance. And that's, that's where he's turning. But he set, it, he set a context at this point. A context for the summons to satisfaction. And you can't bring your people there. You can't call them to repent and to wait upon the Lord unless they already have a vision of how serious sin is and how big God is and how worth a whole life lived and died He is. He is worth our life and He's worth our death. And as long as your people are breathing, as long as you're breathing, the patience of God is at work. The day of the vengeance of God hasn't shown up. The year of the Lord's favor, you're still in it. You might be at the very end of it, but it's still there. But it's not going to last forever. Because the king will show up. And when he does, repentance will no longer be possible and judgment will come. Sin is serious and we have to preach it. But that's not the end of the book. The day of the Lord. That's what our picture says here. And I'm like, yes, but there's more. And we're going to see that more if you can stick around with us for the next three sessions. But so far, the setting has been set for the summons. The setting is that the day of the Lord is coming. Take your sin seriously. Be silent. Let your mouth be shut. Stop talking and take seriously sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that we get to eat 
now and enjoy fellowship. I pray that you would continue to let your word be unpacked clearly and help us overcome my own imperfections as a teacher um, where I use more than three-syllable words. Um, help communication to really happen here uh, where I am speaking and, and there's ears that are attuned and can actually track because we need to hear your book. Without, your, without hearing, faith won't be created and without faith, we can't please you and we want to please you. So work in us what is pleasing in your sight, giving us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that know you. Help us take sin seriously in light of the coming judgment. Thank you for a sacrifice that has come as our substitute so that we ourselves don't have to experience the fire. Help us put our faith in him. Everything starts there. For the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the Kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.